We take a single episode of a science fiction TV series and overanalyze it to within an inch of its life. This is the Fusion Patrol Podcast. Welcome to the discussion. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fusion Patrol. I'm Eugene. And I'm Ben. And tonight we're going to look at the Space 1999 episode, the Series 1 finale, Testament of Arcadia. Tonight, Commander Koenig is going to tell us a bedtime story, the story of the planet Arcadia. The moon is passing a dead world at extreme range, but the moon's course is being altered by a force that is neither gravity nor magnetism. At the same time, Alpha begins to lose power. And then the moon impossibly comes to a halt. With a creeping power loss, Alpha has to explore the possibilities of either finding the source of the interference from the planet or determining if colonization is viable. With the moon only having between 38 and 48 hours of power left and the flight time for a round trip being 30 hours and long-range communications being inoperative, it's going to be a close call. An emergency team is sent, including Koenig, Russell, Bergman, Carter, and two people, Luke and Anna, who probably won't be important to the story. The planet is dead. It is an ex-planet. It has run down the curtain and joined the choir invisible. 25,000 years ago, something happened to destroy all life. But all is not lost. With Alpha's stores, the soil could be made viable in just two years. Unfortunately, Alpha's emergency rations will only last six months. A cave is discovered, and inside, a table surrounded by human skeletons and some writing on the wall in Sanskrit, of all things. Damn lucky that Anna just happens to be that Alphan who has that amazingly useful skill of understanding Sanskrit. She translates the inscription, The planet is Arcadia, and it was destroyed by something the inhabitants did to themselves. They sent out their seed to another world, awaiting the day for the seed to return. Another amazing discovery, all of the dead plants are Earth species. What, what can it mean? Luke and Anna have a religious experience in the cave when no one else is around and have a new vigor and purpose in life. Koning and his team return to Alpha. Once in range, they give the signal to start Operation Exodus. Luke and Anna are overjoyed. Then the power loss stops and stabilizes. Koenig runs the numbers. They can survive at the current power loss level with better odds than going to the planet. So he calls off Operation Exodus. Luke and Anna hatch a desperate plan. They force their way into possession of half of Alpha's protein stores and an eagle, using Dr. Russell as a hostage. Koenig tries to reason with them. Surely they know that with only half their protein stocks... Alpha will die? Yes, they know that, but their religious fervor is unabated. Once they've escaped, turning Dr. Russell over to Alan, Koenig prepares to launch a strike team to get those supplies back. And suddenly, the power is restored, and the moon starts moving, stranding Luke and Anna forever on the dead world, and somehow making the loss of all those supplies no longer a problem for Alpha. Koenig can only conclude that their accident on September 13th, 1999, and the subsequent adventures were not random chance, but a guided plan 
to bring life back to the world that seeded life on Earth. All hail the mighty space god. So I just want to put out there for our listeners that if you've been following on on Hulu or some other service or maybe the DVDs or, or whatever the case may be, you may not be watching these or might not appear that these episodes were meant to be in this order. But this is the production order and we watch them in production order specifically because if you don't watch them in production order, this little proto story arc doesn't pay off as the last episode of the season. So that's why we have come here to the last episode of season one of space 1999. And it is Testament of Arcadia. So I'll start Ben. What did you think? Uh, wow. Um, uh, I think, well, okay, let me put it this way. This, this, this was in my, my review. Uh, this has got to be one of the most profound, deeply significant episodes that I've ever watched. Wait a minute. Let me clarify that. That's what I would have written had I dropped acid. <laughs> it's definitely trying very hard. It is. It's, it's trying, very trying. So, oh, very, this episode is hard. so trying. <laughs> well, I mean, I, yeah, okay, that it's too. But bad. you know what I mean? I think, I think that the writers were – I mean they're laying it on with a trowel here. All of the little bits that we've had along the way, the collision course with, with you know, rising to a different plane and the, the planet, which turns out it's actually heaven, but it's antimatter and, and um, you know, all of the, the space brain and the space warp and, and all of those things that we've um, – the black we've counted sun, on the go. way. That we've counted on the way that keeps – Funk in the head, Alphans on the head that says there's something out there that's kind of either looking out for you or pushing you along or making you do these things uh, to to get where you're going. And then here we come to this episode and it's it's like they've decided to nail a stake in it and go, okay, we've been we've been putting it down, we've been putting it down there, and now. We're going to drive it home. We're going to drive it home hard, and we are really, really going to point out how incredibly important this show is because we're profound, damn it. We're profound. Star Trek didn't have anything like this. We're profound. That's how I feel. I, 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 I feel like they've just really pulled out all the stops to try to make – in case you missed it along the way. <laughs> but um, – Instead, they created a, a, what I viewed as just a, a horribly confusing mess. It's it's definitely a bit of a mess. I had to watch it three times. Wow. Because I was not getting it. In all honesty, I mean, I was not getting it. Uh, I, I kept... I kept feeling like I was missing something. I mean, obviously, I was making, you know, in, you know, in, my, in my head, I was making the own connections, you know, to, um, you know, the space god or space consciousness, you know. Uh, and as well as space brain that's now dead. Yes. Uh, I, I was space brain had to die to bring life back to Arcadia. Apparently that's my so. Theory. Yeah, maybe so. Yeah. I, you know, it's not a bad theory. It's, it's better than anything else that the series is uh, spewing out. Uh, so yeah, I made those connections too, but I was looking for something a little more tangible and I wasn't getting it. Not to my satisfaction at least. Tangible in what way? Um, just, wow, I, I, I'm not even sure how to, how to answer that. Um, just something 
uh, just just some better answers, hmm. I guess. And, and I wasn't getting them, not to my satisfaction. I, I I wasn't getting them, and that's why I had to keep like watching this thing three times because there was it, it just felt like. Uh, I, I was watching something that somebody had written while on a, an, an incredible um, drug high. Hmm. I, I I didn't have to watch it three times, but I've seen it not that long ago. Well, this is my um, first time. Okay, I had yeah, I, I have I've seen never it seen this before. A few times before, and I knew right. I knew the the hook here that Alpha, and it, you know, it's not just. This, unlike the others where you're like, gosh, it's like something must be looking out for us or, wow, how could we possibly have survived that? It must be something looking out for us without anybody actually saying those words. Here, Koenig is writing it down on paper in longhand <laughs> saying, wow, we have this whole different place in the universe than what we thought we we existed in. And I wasn't even getting that. So, I mean, he's, he's saying it out out loud. This is, we did this. Something sent us to this planet. Something launched us from Earth so that we would be here so that we could do this because so that they could, you know, I mean, it's just, you know, it didn't time, feel like, time to get religion. Because, it didn't feel like any kind of analysis or conclude. It, 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 to me, as I was listening to, to the narrative, I kept, Hearing, you know, Koenig, you know, basically describe the events that were going on, and the only thing that he that he said to, to me that had any kind of significance is um, Luke and Anna had an experience, mm-hmm. and they were forever changed. I mean, yes. and I was like, well, okay, duh. I was, so everything what I was hearing uh, was nothing more than just this is what I saw. But I'm not. I, I wasn't getting any sense of him coming to any kind of conclusion. Uh, it, it to me, it felt more like he was just kind of like uh, almost whining Cody? over. Yeah, that, that's how it felt to me. Like he, you know, as he as he's writing this down, it felt more like uh, how you know that that they were inconvenienced. All right, let's talk about this. Um, one, we have once had Doctor Russell give us, I think once, give us sort of introductory. <laughs> Notes the the faux captain's log, right? Kind of thing that that you know would allow Star Trek to set up a situation and go. Although although upon reflection and for the sake of bringing Star Trek into this, uh, you know the captain's log in Star Trek uh, allows us to get a lot of nonsense out of the way, like Starfleet Command has sent me to planet Regula 78 because there's a war going on and we need to investigate the fact that they're using some sort of quantum torpedoes, right? Right. You can you can get by without that, and it's like, we're done. That's why we're here. In Alpha's case, because there is no purpose to where they go, there is nothing to know until you start experiencing it on camera. So it doesn't actually, the captain's log doesn't really lend itself well and the times they've used it it's mostly been like you know oh, 800 days in space we're bored <laughs> you know kind of stuff so <clears throat> so this is a very different story this is this is koenig writing a story he's he's writing a book down and and i think that's intentionally meant to be all right <clears throat> let's just call this out here this is the birth of a religion potentially on Alpha. Koenig is writing the first 
the first gospel, if you will. He's writing the first book, first chapter, first hand I saw what happened da, 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 of this this experience that profoundly changed us. Even if, if only it's him saying that it profoundly changed us. There is a completely different storytelling makeup to this story. And I don't find it particularly successful. I, I it, It's like when you have one of those episodes just, just completely out of whack with the rest of the series, like it's a newsreel episode on MASH instead of a proper episode or whatever it is. They, they've just really gone out of their way to try to do this differently. And I, it's, it's a miss. It, it's a miss. I know what they're trying to do, but it just doesn't quite. And if you discovered, I mean, you say it doesn't, it's not tangible. It doesn't make sense. I mean, obviously you can't examine a religion and have it make sense. There's there's a certain amount of it doesn't quite do that. It doesn't quite fit. It's it got to have some myth involved in it. Once you hit myth, then it's parable and you're kind of going. But here we're being presented this as if it's factual. And yet Koenig is taking it as mystic. That It's another one of those things that's weird about this story to me. Um and and that's you know thematic. There's tons of weird things about the story that don't make any sense. And one of them that bugs me, bugs the heck out of me, since we're on it, and since I'm ranting, um, rant away. <laughs> the cave scene where Luke and Anna oh, see, please, that's it. see that, I mean, the, that's, the, the faces. That's that the makes kicker. no sense. Koenig is saying they had some sort of experience. Okay, if if that were true, Koenig didn't witness it. We needed to see. Before they went in. And then after they came out. And then after they came out, that they were very, very different. Very changed. We don't don't see that. We don't see that. I mean, once they get desperate on Alpha and they start going, then, you know, he can say, yeah, something changed them. Something profoundly changed the way they are. But he doesn't know what happened in the cave. No, he has no way of knowing that it was the cave. I mean, he and he knows that they were in there slipping a little bit of uh, sack time with each other. And they decided, hey, this is the place we consummated our love. Let's let's live on this planet. I mean, they could be something as nutty and stupid as that. But they show us the audience, those cloaked figures coming to life and nodding knowingly to our friends, not conveying any information, not doing anything. I Personally, if they came to life and nodded at me, I would think this is the last planet on the universe I oh, want. Oh, I'd be on. running. I, I was like, I'm out of here. Feats don't fail me now. Right? But it, it it's it's like the director wanted to tell us one thing. The story wants to tell us the, – the script wants to tell us a different thing. And by doing it this way – Neither makes a lot of sense. Mm-mm. Um, I, yeah, and it and it puts the episode at odd with at, at odds with itself. Mm-hmm. So I I end up with something that just I mean it it misses on all counts as far as I'm concerned. And then there's that music, <laughs> oh. and we talked about that is you know the borrowing music from other sources because it's cheaper that way, and it it was well to me this one was like it it was. It was never more evident. I'm, well, no, I don't recognize no. it, the tune. I know you're right. Yeah, actually, no, that's that's not right. I mean, using Mars Bringer of War was is, was like egregious, but this one there was just it, it. Wow, I mean, I don't know what that was supposed to represent. It certainly didn't fit the scene. It was just a, a misfire at every turn. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And the other thing that kind of gets me, okay, so maybe Koenig kind of infers that, you know, the, the, about uh, how, how Alpha and, you know, the moon, they were guided to this place. You know, I didn't get that, but I'll, I'll accept that it's there. I mean, I, I, like I said, I came to that conclusion within myself. I would have liked for it to be a bit more substantial um, in the story. And that's, that's part of things that really bothered me is that I never felt any kind of connection that was being made. I didn't get that, that our cast or that Koenig or that Dr. Russell or that Victor, that they were making any kind of connection to past stories. Now, granted, we've talked about, you know, this, there was no such thing as a story arc. Uh, and, and largely, you know, in, in Space 1999, for the most part, uh, has been, you know, 98% uh, reset at the every, end of every episode. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I'm I'm not I'm not even going to pretend like this is a story arc. I I I said proto story arc. You know that really kind of applies to Blake Seven, but this is even earlier than that. But but working on the assumption that this was intended to be the series one finale, and working on the 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 theme. Let's just let's just call it a theme. We we've talked about space nineteen ninety nine. The theme is space is bigger and weirder than we understand. Well, this right. is part of it. That it, it is. It is this, part of that. And occasionally they delve into the rainy realm of of what we jokingly called space god. But but I don't even know what you know. You're not even joking here. And yet you're you're absolutely right. And I had not put that together. Koenig does not put any of the pieces together. Koenig Bergman. Anybody, they don't put any of the pieces together in the scenes we see. It's only put together in Koenig's dialogue, uh, the narration dialogue, after the fact. It's almost as if they added it after the fact. Hmm. Because maybe they showed this episode to people and they're like, I don't know, it? And they go, aha, I think maybe we need to frame this with a little bit more to point out uh, profound. This is profound. Now, as you did say, you put the pieces together. And, and that's part of the problem. It's painfully obvious that that's what's happening, and yet the Alphans seem to be completely oblivious to it. Uh -huh. It's almost it, – it is literally at times Koenig says something and and Space God says, oh, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> Let's change the game again. <laughs> and and the, be the biggest example of that is, all right, uh, let's operate – uh, Operation Exodus, let's get it going. We've got a slightly better chance on the planet. Commander, the power loss is stopped. Oh, well, wait a minute. Uh, okay, let's not do that then. <laughs> it's like, <coughs> the words come out of his mouth. Space God hears them and goes, oh, no, no, no. That won't do. That's not my plan. My plan's a lot stupider than this. So... Let's strand those two people who will create a gene pool that will be looking like the British royalty in six generations. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are, you know, everything that happens is in this story has been driven by these completely inexplicable circumstances that they never really try to understand. How can the moon be moving? I don't know, John. It's something. It's not magnetism. It's not gravity. Huh. That's not possible. No, it's not. We're heading towards that dead planet. Huh. We're stopping. We've, we've, we've stopped. We've come that's to a complete not possible. That's not possible. Yet there it is. 
Well, that's a dead planet. I don't think we're going to bother to explore. The- oh, we're losing power, Commander. We're going to die. That's not so, possible. Well, I guess we better go explore that planet. We better go explore the planet. Okay. <laughs> it, it, and then they managed to land on the spot where they're going to find the cave, where the last testament of Arcadia on that entire planet. Right? That can't be, can't be an accident. That can't be coincidence. No. Because that's exactly what they needed to do to create the situation, to bring the life back to the planet. And so, you know, every every step of the way was orchestrated for the Alphans to do exactly what happened. So there had to be something. And the biggest evidence to that uh, is right at the very end when uh, Luke and Anna are now on the planet and Koenig is like, okay – now we're you know we're we're gonna you know everybody first first is everybody we need you know get off the moon get off, you know we're all leaving the moon oh wait power stabilized hmm okay we're gonna go after Luke and Anna oh darn the moon is moving you know and at that point you've uh-huh. got to be thinking somebody is behind this yeah let's but go after them Boom. but Space nothing was ever stated out loud and that's where I just kept scratching my head because. Uh, being that this was the first time I was watching it, I was really trying to approach it from that if I knew nothing about no. this series or if I knew nothing about – because I, I understand that the series does – you know, it, it does reset. Each every, every episode is – you know, at the very end, they reset and we're back to status quo uh, except we're more people and more eagles. Uh, right. But – I mean and but, – but obviously, you know, the, the, the uh, critical mind, you know – Having reviewed these for the show, I mean, obviously, I've got a sense of memory, like you know, about about the space god, about the space brain. I, I remember these things, so obviously, these details are kind of like you know, you know, burning in the back of my brain. But I'm still trying to approach this as a 100% standalone, mm-hmm. and that's where it just completely collapses. Well, yeah. Here's another thing about space god in this episode. He's an idiot. I mean, he's really an idiot. This is this is possibly the dumbest deity plan I've ever heard, and I've heard some dumb ones, but this one takes the cake. How about this one for a scenario? If Alpha doesn't need the pro- the protein supplies, if they continue to have their power, right? So at the end of the episode, we've lost half our protein supplies. Doesn't matter. We've got power back. We can take care of it, right? Mm-hmm. We know Space God can curve the course of the moon. So he puts it in orbit around the dead planet Arcadia. Alphans live on Alpha for the next two years using their regenerating protein stocks to regenerate the planet. And 311 minus however many dead people are in the first series uh, return to the origin planet of Earth and start the world anew. And... We didn't need any of this drama. And you have 300 people, which, you know, in 1974, they didn't know was too small of a gene pool to have survived. But, um, you know, it, it sounds a lot better than putting two people. Oh, wait. What amazes me is their names weren't Adam and Evelyn. Oh, I know. That would have like, that would have been just. Uh, I think that you know I wouldn't be surprised if their char- if their names were originally, and then somebody said, "Okay, that might be too much." So remind me um, because my uh, my 
Bible literacy is uh, woefully uh, uh, lacking. Luke, one of the books, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, it's one of the Gospels of Christ. One of the Gospels. Is there anything about him that we can draw as no something with this story? Okay. No. There's no Annas. There might be there might be ancillary characters by that name and but nothing major, right? But not nothing nothing that stands out. Not like Ruth or Esther or anything like that. No. Hmm. Okay. Uh, I'm just checking. Um, thought maybe they were trying to sneak another one in there because we do. No, I, I don't think so. <sighs> uh, yeah. I mean, just just a terrible plan. And and really, if if you had launched. If you had launched the moon out of Earth's orbit with the intent of reseeding that planet, wouldn't a compassionate space god give them a home? That could be a quite nice planet for them. It could be, and I'm sure there's got to be better ways to to do this. Uh, space god, I would like to think, has got just has enough power to kind of like maybe manipulate. A little. Oh, I can't do that because stop it, the moon solid. Well, not just stop. I mean, look, look what went. Look what everybody had to go through to get to that point. As you pointed out, you know, over three hundred people dead. And if you uh, remember from uh, Breakaway, mm-hmm. there's a, a news report that uh, comes oh, yeah, from Earth. Earth. Is being destroyed. Oh, yeah. the Earth is a the Earth is a wreck because of the the, the moon shearing away from like from the Earth like that. And and what it was doing to gravitational force. I mean, it was just awful. So wow, not very compassionate. If if space god did indeed uh, have a hand in you know smacking the moon away from Earth onto this long journey just for the sole purpose of receding Arcadia. Well, what about what about after that? It doesn't really matter. When uh, when the craftsman done, he can throw away his tools. What was that phrase Luke uses? He he said something, and that's yeah, the other he does. Thing about, that's the other thing about this story, um, and and I I don't. It's not my intent here to be banging on about religion, but it's kind of hard not to draw those conclusions here. Luke and Anna become fervently maniacal devotees of this higher purpose that they're exposed to. And his comments there's a like that. that. Com- <laughs> there, there's yes, a word there- for that. Um, zealots. Yes. Yes. And his comment, like, uh, you know, the one about throwing, you know, I no longer need the tools. When the lines of destiny meet, the tools it uses are no longer needed. And to him to justify letting Alpha burn. It's like, okay. That's I'll, a very, I'll give you, you know, one. I, oh, go ahead. I was going to say that, that is um, uh, what you would, classify as a very old testament way of thinking yes you know it, it's right up there with the you know with god that you know created earth is disappointed in his creations he he failed in his creations, so he's going to flood the planet and start again right. huh well and really he also says, if alpha needs to be the sacrificial lamb then so be it i mean it's very old testament it's very old testament and they are very well, they're zealots, but they're they're very devout as well to this to this uh, thing. And and here's another one. And this one, you know, like I'm not sure whether or not because clearly Luke and Anna were shocked when the moon kept going. They're like, "Blunk, oh, moon's oh, gone, moon's going away." Yeah, 
the argument was that at half power and with half of their supplies, Alpha could not survive. Okay, uh, and if if they had their supplies on the planet, um, Alpha could survive uh, six months, but it would take them two years to rejuvenate the planet. Okay, the equation doesn't work out very well there. If Space God, you know, I mean, again, all Space God had to do was to give them their power back and problem solved. Why did Luke and Anna only take half the supplies when it was very clear that that was a death sentence for Alpha? And take if half it, supplies, why right. not just take all of them then? Yeah, exactly. If, if the moon is to be the sacrificial lamb in all of this, then by all means, take it all. Take it all. And Koenig, you big pansy, <laughs> let Russell die. You know, as, as, as ugly as that sounds, I agree. Because like, this really Russell was like, no, you can't let them kill three hundred people on Alpha just to save my life. She was willing, and I'm well, willing is not the right word, but in other words, she understood why you cannot succumb to their demands, and yet Koenig still oh he had to. he folded like a cheap you know cheap house of cards, and and what did they expect? You know what what did Luke and Anna expect when they left? Alpha, and they went to the moon. No, they're not going to sit there and come after us with their laser rifles and lasers and lots of laser-equipped eagles and stuff. Nah, they're not going to fly down here just because they desperately know they're going to die. Of course they would have. And even if they hadn't had a tracker on them, they'd have found them. Right, and I think that's really the only reason, you know, and and I don't don't like giving – Koenig any kind of credit in this because I thought he was just his 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 rationale was just terrible and everything, but um and I remember that there was there were moments where he just like really screamed at you know, at Paul you know we gotta you know follow my orders do this and you let them go etc and turns out that the reason he's doing it is because he did have that tracker he did have a plan uh and so I can kind of forgive letting Doctor Russell be a hostage because he had a plan. It was a crummy one, but he uh-huh. had a plan. So I'm going to give him just the tiniest of allowances on that. Now, had he had no plan whatsoever, none, then I would have thought, okay, you you really need to step down and someone else needs to take over as commander of Moonbase because you are incompetent. Well, we know he's incompetent, but so then I'm going to ask you this question. At what point... While he was standing in main mission, watching Luke stare at him with a gun to Helena's head, at what point did he give the order to have the tracker put in the supplies that he ordered to be put on the Eagle? Hmm. Probably at the same time as he actually verbalized some kind of analysis as to uh, what was really going on in the connection between past episodes. In other words, never. Uh Uh-huh. So that's... I would like to add, though, of course, that um, had Luke pulled the trigger, it wouldn't have done any good because nothing can damage that face. <laughs> well. <laughs> it would have bounced right off. I'm sorry. That skin is so tight. It would have bounced right off. It would have hurt somebody else. But she would have lived. That face is a trampoline. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Barbara Bain. I love you. I really do. <laughs> well, yeah, mark that one down on the list. Got our uh, We Love Barbara Bain in. Yeah. We're <clears throat> making a quota. I'm thinking Fusion Patrol bumper stickers. Hey. <laughs> hey. We like Barbara Bain. We really do. 
There's you know there's something for your Patreon subscribers. There we go. <laughs> I would I'd pay money to see somebody driving down the street with that, but I'm not going to go so far. I'll design it. Are you kidding? I'd put it on my car. I don't like bumper stickers on my car, but I'd put that one on. No, I don't put bumper stickers on my cars either. But yeah, I do that one. I'll do magnets. Oh yeah, I'll do magnets. Yeah, magnets. Except except I tell you this story. I, I have these. Uh, you know those ribbon. Bumper uh, magnets, you know, support this, support that, support oh, yeah. the other, whatever, right? Um, we had a set that uh, support our scientists, which I got out of some institute over at Arizona State University. And uh, I had it on my old car, my old Hyundai. And when I traded in, I forgot to take it off. Oops. And I'm like, oh, no, I forgot the sticker, the, the magnet. And I went back. In, you know, this is in the summer, and I went back to the dealership the next day, and I'm like, I'm sorry, I left something in the car. I actually left something in the car, stuck into the ODBC port or the OBD double whatever port, and then um, and also the the magnet. And I went to get the magnet, and I'm like, oh, I'm so happy I get the magnet back. And I peel the thing off, and I guess the heat had just been too much for it, and so it had melted onto the car. And so by the time I got it off, it was ruined. And it left like a little stain on the car. And I'm like, mm, this is embarrassing. Uh, so I went home and I ordered another one. And then, uh, you know, that took a week or two to come in. And I got my new one. And I'm like, yeah, I got my new one. And I went out to put it on my new Prius. And it turns out it's plastic. <laughs> it won't stick. <laughs> it will not stick. <laughs> the sides are metal. But the that's not enough. Every, everything in the back is completely non-magnetic. It was not funny. Anyway, sorry. That's space god laughing at me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> See, I tied that back to the episode somehow. Anyway. Very good. Uh, I'm totally impressed. I'm, I'm, I was very impressed. Um, so a couple things. Victor and his slide roll was so cute. Oh. <laughs> Sat there on the eagle in front of that bank of computers, pulling his slide rule aside. And He's doing so old school. Victor, there's something very old. There's always been something very old school about Victor, you know, when he's bouncing back and forth between being scientist and philosopher. I would like to think that that's because Victor's old school, but the fact is that's probably what they thought would happen. In 1999, they'd still be using slide rules for all the smart people. Well, they had no concept of, of the, the power of, of the com- computer. I mean, even uh, even in 1999, well, 1999. I mean, the, the computers, home computers, were becoming were, were pretty pretty significant. Nobody had a slide rule in 1999. No, no, no one was using slide rules back away. then. Oh God, no, no one was using them. Of course not. I mean, so yeah, a lot of that was just an extrapolation from when the series was filmed. So again, I'll I'll just chalk that up as whimsy. Yeah, but I'll, well, but I'll I, leave it alone. Uh, yeah, I'll leave I'll leave it alone. I mean, it's. It, it's not 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 something as, as just blatantly awful as you know some of the other things that that are worthy of being picked upon in this episode. How about the completely useless handles on the coffee mugs? Hmm. They're not they're not handles. They're flaps. They have no hole in them. When they're when that's they're right. Handing, they're handing the coffee cups around. They've got just one big ugly ear. <laughs> That's right. I did notice it's a that space mug. You know, and the yeah, and the weird thing is, is that that's not comfortable. No, it's not comfortable to hold. No, and it's not very secure. No, it's you, not. You know, and we've seen the way the moon gets jostled around a bit. I mean, you—that's a bad idea. In fact, those were the those are the ones on board a flying ship as well. They're the eagle. They were on the eagles. So mm-hmm. those are the eagle ones. It takes more material. It's not as practical, but it looks like it belongs in space. No, it doesn't. Not um, really. 
So how, how do you feel about, in 1974, a science fiction program trying to tell us <clears throat> that Arcadia was destroyed 25,000 years ago, and it's an Earth-like world. It had all our Earth-like plants and humans, and they sent the seed to Earth, which became us, which which uh, became us, they sent us. They must have sent people. It must have been actual people that traveled over there and landed on Earth and put all the trees down and and then came back. I mean, that is so stupid. <laughs> like, uh-huh. Uh, I, mean, I mean, all right, we're, we're going to come back to the, the religious parallels here. And then, sorry, Noah's Ark. Obviously, there are people who believe Noah's Ark is a real story. Yeah, and, there are. Which, you know, you're still wondering how the freaking kangaroos got off the ark and got back to Australia. Uh, you know. It was Pangea. <clears throat> and managed to go back to the places where the fossil record says they have. You know, I mean, it's all. It it, it doesn't make any sense. And it so if wa- they're I in t- one spot I and know, they're measuring but- all these plants and they're going, oh, these are all the earth plants. Are it, are you including. Are you including. A saguaro cactus in that, Doctor Russell? Or how did the, is a saguaro cactus an Earth plant, or is a saguaro cactus an Arcadia plant that just didn't happen to be in this area, and then they took it to Earth and somehow decided ah, Arizona desert? I've got <clears throat> two words that will answer that. <laughs> plot hole? S- n- no. Oh well, plutonium. Yeah. No. What I was going to say is space god. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It Works all comes in back to that. Ways. He doesn't it, work in logical ways. <laughs> but no, but because they're very mysterious. I mean, logical. There's nothing mysterious about about logical ways. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's what pe- that's what religious people do in order to try and uh, explain away or rationalize um, the irrational by simply saying, "Well, God works in mysterious ways." Uh, you know what? If if God were really the way you describe God to be, um, that would not be at the top of my list. <clears throat> And it, I and I am, and I am a Christian, a very liberal one, but I I am so. Uh, for me to say that, it's you know I I feel very strongly about that. So yeah, it's it it has that sort of. It sounds good for about thirty seconds if, when you're watching it. If if thirty if, seconds, you go, wow, this planet seeded Earth. This is this is where life. Wait a minute. Start doing. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't hold up though. I mean, when you so really what about the T Rex. Yeah. You put that, put this whole premise under a magnifying glass, and it just burns. Burns. I would f- be far more inclined to believe that a group of ancient astronauts from Earth landed in this one spot and brought along a few trees and a couple humans on Arcadia. And, you know, in the time they had to explore the planet, it's like, how could these be here? Somebody must have brought these plants here. Because we know, we know with, with, a degree of certainty and precision from evidence about much, even if we do, if there are still gaps about the evolutionary history of of the flora and the fauna of this planet, and we can see bits of it that make sense that show that's how this ended up being where it is, and it's not brought here from space. So you just can't make the argument that elm trees were brought to Earth. You could make the argument that DNA was brought to Earth, you know, and then somehow... And then, that- and then it, it, it took... Uh, it, it 
it I, took hold on Earth. Yeah, that I can I'll accept. accept the possibility that Earth was seeded. I will not accept the possibility, even in a 30-second science fiction stupid story, that 30 seconds that uh, I think it was, it was all transplanted. And yeah, and all this stuff is transplanted. It, it just doesn't work. And I no, it doesn't. And and I was trying, trying to think back to 1974. And certainly no serious scientist, even in 1974, would have taken that. But but would the public? I mean, obviously, some of the public would buy it now because they voted for Trump. But uh, that you send your hate mail to. <laughs> Feel free. <laughs> hey, you, include if you're me. A Trump supporter. Feel free, <laughs> because your mail will be going into the round file. Oh. <laughs> anyway, um, so yeah, that part. That that part. It, you me. raise a good question. You know what? What? And I, I was wondering about that too. What did the audience of that day think about this? Now, I can already. I can only surmise that. And, and I'm using a very, very small uh, microcosm out of this. I mean, the friends that I hung around with were all critical thinkers. And I, even at that time, I mean, we were, we were in our early teens, but even at that time, uh, the idea of pursuing a, a religious life was like the furthest thing from mm-hmm. any, you know, as far you know, from any of their, any of their thoughts. It's just not something that they would do. Because they were all very much into analysis and research, uh, the things that that uh, you know we can both appreciate. So all I can go by is just the friends that I hung around with, and I can tell you that they would look at this and say, <laughs> "What a piece of garbage." Mm. Uh, as, far, as, else? as far as the re- as far as the rest of the 1999 viewing audience, you know, again, this might be another case of the writers have no idea who they're writing for. I think that's. Let me ask this question: Would they have? Would they have said, "Hey, those Arcadian skeletons are bright, shiny white plastic"? <laughs> what species evolves with a plastic skeleton? Plastic uh, people. Plastic people. Hmm. Um. So I'm right, sorry. I'm sorry. I was talking about Helen's, uh, uh, Barbara Banks' face again. Darn it! Shame they on are me. The ancestors of mankind. They're Helena's ancestors. They're Helena's ancestors. So she was born with that face. So I want to, since since you kind of brought it up all tangentially, hit it now. Um, and we mentioned it earlier in the podcast, but let's explore it a little bit more. The theme that Space 1999, that space is big and mysterious. All right? We, we, we talked about that from, from day one, talking uh-huh. about this series. That that's what I remember about Space 1999, is that things happen. They don't have time to collect the data. They don't have time to make a proper scientific analysis. Because they're on the move. And they're on the move. And they get sent out of the way. But we encounter things that we would think are impossible. But obviously they aren't because they do, in fact, happen. Now, here's here's my question or or premise. If we're on a... mm, How do I phrase this? Um, Can you conceive of a situation where something is impossible that you then later would think, well, it's it's not that it's impossible. It's just that I don't understand how it happens. So, for example, you're on a planet and you're holding a hammer and you drop the hammer and it falls halfway down 
to the ground and it stops. Okay? That's a thing that our experience tells us cannot happen. Right. I personally cannot come up with it. Even if I weren't going to tell the audience what it was, I can't come up in my mind a plausible explanation for that other than something stopped it. It doesn't have to be an anthropomorphic thing, but something stopped it. There's yeah, something some, there. Some kind of planetary force. I mean, it, it, it could be manufactured. It could be organic. It could be any number of things. Uh, but there, there could be something really uh, – yeah, I mean I, I wouldn't know. Right? So, well, but so they, what I'm getting at is what human beings have done forever. When you can't understand the gaps, they make up stories. You chalk it up they to God. Up, you chalk it up to God. You, you make up a religion. You make up a, you make up a myth. You come up with a story. And as we fill in the holes – in each of the the myths with evidence and science, if you will, or not science itself, but facts, basically, um, you know, these things go away. Does that work in Alpha's case? Because it seems to me like every time now, looking at it in hindsight, every time they're coming up against, wow, space is mighty mysterious, it's really like, wow, space is really, there's some, there's an intelligence there. It's like even in Dragon's Domain, when they're halfway across the universe or solar system or wherever it is they're halfway across, uh, or the galaxy. And <laughs> Don't make me pull those numbers out again. And, and suddenly the ships are there. It's like, that's not possible. Right. But it just isn't, that isn't possible unless somebody we moved in there. And so you have to. You have to wonder if it's – is it a failure on the writer's part because they, like all human beings, fill in the God in the gaps? Well, here herein lies a, a really, really big problem with that. Uh, I would – I mean it's, it's very easy for humanity to, to kind of want to say, well, somebody's got to be doing something. Now, again, exploring the idea of the story arc – uh, having gone through the the events of Black Sun, there it, it became pretty clear, at least for the duration of that episode, that there is an intelligence that operates on a scale that is so massive that uh, we, we're incapable of perceiving it. With that knowledge, just based on that fact alone, I would have to continually entertain the possibility. I mean, if I had been in either Victor's or or, or Koenig's uh, shoes and and experienced what they did. Uh, well, the first thing I do is I'd be questioning my sanity uh, mm -hmm. because you know we just went through a black hole and all of reality gets totally warped. So did it happen? Did it not happen? Um, I would have to impair. You know, I, as, as a as a critical thinker, I would have to entertain the idea that I might have imagined it. I mean, I don't. I'm not going to say that I definitely did. But I have to entertain the idea that there's a good chance that I imagine that. Okay, so did, did we really get old? Did we really hear that? Did voice? that really happen, or was I just having a really weird trip going it through a black hole? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I have to entertain the idea that it, it was all in my head. I have to do that. Um, granted, there's some other weird stuff that happens. Eagles are flying off in an opposite direction, and hey, they're back. So there's a lot of weirdness that's going on. Uh, but at the same time, I'm not going to shut the door. On the possibility that, okay, did I imagine it? 
Maybe, maybe not. I'm not going to wholesale it, just except, oh, I did have an encounter with Space God. I'm not going to do that, but I'm not going to say it never happened either. You know, see what I'm saying? So now you move that forward to this particular situation and and any other weirdness that has happened, you know, preceding Arcadia. Um, I would, I admit, had I been on Alpha, that part of me, you know, that would be a part of my brain. The very, very back of my brain will be saying, uh, you remember what happened to us when we went near that black hole, guys? When we went in it? Anybody remember that? Hmm? Now, I'm not saying that it's happening again, that I'm not saying, you know, that somebody's there, but uh, let's not rule out that somebody uh, on a really grand scale is moving us about like a chess piece. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to do that either. But going back to your, uh, your analogy of being on the planet and dropping the hammer, uh, something like that, I mean, the first thing that's going to be running through my head is, Okay, something is doing it. I may not. I, I, I mean, I'm the last thing I want to want to do is I'm going to attribute that. Oh, space God is holding it there, just as some kind of bizarre proof that space God exists. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be. I'm going to be the the uh, analytical thinker. You know, and I'd like to think that everybody else on Alpha will be doing the same thing. That they'd be trying to understand with the limited amount of time that they've got. That. Okay, there's, there's, there's a natural force to the universe. It doesn't have to be this cosmic intelligence, but there's a natural force to the universe, or, 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 or at least to this planet. There's something going on here in this planet that is unique, that is causing this situation. Darn, I wish we had the time to explore it, but we don't. But, wow, isn't this planet weird? Have we seen any growth, and I, and I, I say that not mockingly, but... Oh, mock away, please, because I'm going to say no. <laughs> have we seen anything in Koenig uh, that <sighs> – so there have been several situations where I have felt like when presented with what, again, in a story situation, is adequate evidence for some sort of intelligence, whatever we want to call it, that it's not – it's like – Come back to the hammer. If you drop a hammer and the hammer goes halfway to the ground, you think, well, well could it cause that? That violates the laws of physics. That must, you know, do you jump to the conclusion and say, is that space god? No, you don't. You jump to the conclusion that's some force I don't understand. But, but what if you drop the hammer and it drops down halfway there and then it moves over and then in the air uh, it moves around and spells out the word, hello, I'm space god. It's like, okay, that had to be intelligence guiding it. Right? There has to be some kind of intelligence. I'd also like to think that there's some f- form of fraud going on. I mean, that'd be the first thing that'd be running through my head. See, so you're, you're naturally jumping to this cynical, to this dis, dis, disbelieving point of view, which is a, you know, a fair, uh, a fair uh, position to take. Critical thinking is that don't, you know, don't accept an, an explanation without evidence and don't jump to the weirdest oh it must be space aliens oh wait it could be space aliens but no i'd be taking the the um the, i'd go for space aliens over space god any day well yeah um, i exactly <laughs> i mean i the only time i'm going to go for space god you know it's i'm going to take the, the 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 arthur conan doyle uh, approach you know when, when all things uh god you know this you know the statement i'm trying to make Mm. Uh, that, 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 that Sherlock Holmes in heaven and earth. Oh. Well, no, no, no. That, oh, that, that you eliminated hom- the impossible. When you, when yeah, the possible, all, all it remains is the impossible. Yeah. However, uh, you know, improbable oh, it may be, name. must be the truth. I, I can but, accept. I mean, but see, you've gone through the critical thinking. You've ruled out through rationale, through analysis. You've ruled out 
every every other possibility that you can think of. And if Space God is the only thing that exists, I mean, it's the only thing that's left, well, then I'm forced to accept it as the truth. But, you know, okay, so I'm a doubting Thomas. What can I say? But isn't Koenig, hasn't Koenig largely been a doubting Thomas? Bergman has been the one willing to believe. Koenig has, for the most part, not always, but for the most part, Koenig has been, strangely enough, the I don't believe that, Victor. That doesn't make any sense. That's not... He's the critical thinker in spite of two instances it's, with, with in Space God. In spite of his I'd rather feel than think. Well, but, but, yeah. but it's also – I mean he had the close encounter with Space God and he had – and the, uh, the – I guess the uh, – when he had the, the, the mind meld, if you want to call it that, and learned about um, Space Brain. Right, which is relatively that's, – that's why I was asking. Have we seen a little bit of character development here? No. Because Koenig is the one who has – starting out was very much – the not believey type, and here he is. He is the one who is explicitly writing down in the piece of paper, without using the phrase "space god," that the universe did this, whatever you want to call it. Well, that the does show something. Sent us here, and he has transcended the the skepticism. That is that is a sign of growth, but and that worries me because he's writing it down, and like I say, that is the that's the point where you start making the next Bible is. You now you're now you're making the book, the book of John. Two. Oh God, John Mark two, uh, <laughs> right? Yeah, that, that it's kind of what they're implying here in a, in a uh, way, and and they also mention it in in Dragon's Domain. Well, we're going to need a mytho- new mythology when we start our new own planet, and and we had the same thought at the time. Why actually do you need a new yeah, mythology? Exactly. <clears throat> How about? That's an actual story of a thing that happened. Well, yeah, be historical about we call it. it. We call it history. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you don't have to start making, you know, or inserting superstition or or myth in, in order to uh, flesh out a story. I mean, just tell the facts as they are, as, as you can best understand them. I mean, if you want to acknowledge the possibility of some greater consciousness or some greater force having been a manipulator in this, I mean – Okay, I mean, okay, yeah. If you want, if you want to acknowledge that, fine, but don't start, you know, writing down, you know, the the beginning books of the Bible. Don't do that. I mean, that, that right. to me, that Record to me, that makes no sense. Typewriter. No, <laughs> I'm sure they must have tape borrow, recorders. Borrow Dr. Russell's uh, selectric and and type it up instead of don't handwriting. Don't they have but voice recorders? That's like a computer. They're not going to do that. Oh, please. Well, no, they don't. They have to use punch tape. <laughs> okay, a couple more little things. Um, how is it? Let, let's, let's go. <clears throat> let's talk this one through. See how this works. If they brought all of Alpha's supplies to the planet, the, heck, let's call it 200 people surviving on Alpha. I think it's close, still supposed to be closer to 300, and... You know, we've lost our count, but it, it probably is still in the high two, 200s. Uh, but let's call it 200 to make the numbers easier. You have enough supplies on Alpha for 200 people for six months. And you could make the soil viable in two years. So that you could start growing your own stuff. Later in the episode, Luke, and that's with Alpha being dead. So later in the episode, with Alpha being at 50% power and stabilized, Luke and Anna steal... Three years' supply of survival rations for two people. Now, 
I'm not 100% sure on my math here, but if you have a six-month supply for 200 people, that means Alpha's stores are the equivalent of 600 months supply for two people. So therefore, three years supply or 36 months is less than an eighth? Yeah, it's, it's certainly not a half. It's certainly not a half of their supplies. <clears throat> Somebody does not have very good mathematical skills when writing these episodes. That yeah. has been proven. So you wonder, did, did he – was Space God making Luke steal 50 percent of their supplies so that Alpha would have no – right, no qualms about – you know, it's enough that they're going to let him go. But it's not enough that it's going to kill them when it space god lets them go, <laughs> right? It's 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 like is there an equation here that was played that's different than what we think? Because if you think of it, if you think of this story in a series of events that happen randomly, it's a different story than if you think of it as a series of events that are being manipulated by space god. Right. It's like. It makes no sense that the moon's slowing down. It makes no sense that the power is going out. It makes no sense, you know, if nothing's wrong and you're losing power, what? I, right? It just a lot of this episode does not make sense. Um. Okay. And the thing Let's is that you see. know we're we're trying really hard here to make this episode work, and right. it's not. But don't you feel? Don't you feel better? Because in Koenig's closing words. For all of mankind, there is a purpose. Don't you feel part of a bigger plan now? Bollocks. No. Um, no. Not, not, not thing, on that kind yeah. of a scale. I mean, what? I'm, I mean, so th there's – we're watching a television show. Let, let's, let's really reduce this down to it's, – it's, you know, the, the, the truth here. We're looking at a television show that had a very stupid writer. <laughs> yeah, all right. <laughs> All right. Eh, I think he was trying – again, I think he was trying profound, but boy, did he, he miss may. the mark. Oh, my gosh. The mistakes on this are terrible. I mean – By the way, there is there is a line of dialogue. I wrote it down, and it, now that I think about our earlier conversation, there is one line of dialogue in this episode that is not in the narration that indicates Koenig is thinking about Space God, and that's at the end – when he's like, oh, they're they're stranded on the planet all alone, trapped forever. And Dr. Russell said, it was their choice, John. And his response was, was it? it their choice? So, I mean, that is the one indication in the non-narration that he's like, something did that to them. Well, he did observe that there was a personality change in the both of them, especially in Luke. I didn't notice the personality change until he pulled a gun. Well, that's well, that's it. I mean, now, yes, as we said earlier in this in, in this uh, recording, uh, granted, during Koenig's writing, narration, voiceover, whatever, he states that it happened while they're in the cave, and uh, to me, that is uh, wow. The fact that he was able to make that conclusion is just boggling to no end. But it does become evident that something did happen. At some point, when we're back on Alpha and Luke pulls the gun on Helena. So at this point, now we know. L this is not the Luke we know. He's acting like a complete loony 
uh, Looney Tunes. I mean, him and Anna both. I mean, they're the way they're talking, the mm-hmm. way they're behaving. They are really coming off as insane religious zealots. There's no question about it. So at this point, I can understand why Koenig might say, was it? He's now thinking something – clearly something did happen to them that maybe gave them diminished thinking capacity, that maybe there was an alien influence. I mean he's not saying, but just by saying what if, I mean that's a very, very, very broad statement. Hmm. It doesn't necessarily have to mean that he's entertaining the idea of, of space god or space brain being involved in this. He's, he's making the, uh, the assumption or, or putting out the idea that maybe there was some external force that altered their that, thinking. Yeah. I still hope that Koenig is smart enough to see that they were manipulated at every turn. At every turn, they were manipulated into doing exactly what needed to be done to get them down to the planet, to get them to see the table, to get them to transmit the thing, to get them to not do the exodus, well, to get them to not chase the supplies back. I mean, it's Coney, you know, if he if if such if such uh, if it's so obvious. Uh, I mean, Koenig certainly does not verbalize it. Nobody is verbalizing it, and that's the thing that just really perplexed me as I was watching this. Like, what? I mean, I I'm I need. I need the characters in the show to drive the narrative. Uh, I mean, now, granted, there are other shows where we as the viewer, we are expected to come to our own conclusions and things are left very open-ended, whatever, because they want people to come to their own individual place as far as what the story is trying to say. That's not this situation. And instead, they're not saying anything. There, it's it's like, uh, and, and I'm giving the writers and and Jerry Anderson and everybody who's involved in Space 199, I'm giving them way too much credit by what I'm about to say. It's almost as if they were expecting all of the fans to have been on board from the very beginning and draw these conclusions themselves. Therefore, why do we have to say it in this last episode? Well, to me, I mean, if that's if that was indeed their intent, then rubbish to that because that's that's not very good writing. Okay, so <clears throat> last. Last thing, this is the end of series one, of Space nineteen ninety nine. Now, uh, I I think you know we are talking about a, I hate to say forty year old show, but there are changes coming. Uh huh. Yes, there are. The show the show is retooled for series two, um, to try to uh, improve its marketability, uh, particularly in the United States, and and we'll talk about those changes. And I have. I have tried to remove them whenever we've we've stumbled across them in the podcast uh, for the first things. But, you know, it would be a lie for us to say that we don't know what they are. No, we, we know what they are. <laughs> we know what they are, and we'll discuss them, their, their successes and, and or failures as, as they come with Series 2. But I want you to try to put that at your mind right. as to what is actually coming. And ask yourself two questions. One, having been had this bombshell dropped on us in the last episode, that the moon is in fact actually a plaything or a tool of space god, for sure. Not just, gosh, it seems like it might be, but it's like Koning tells us it's true. Given that, 
Given the deficiencies, the problems that we've seen with Space 1999, what would you have done to kind of rejigger the show? Well, I'd put them on the spaceship searcher and send them out looking for the lost tribes. Oh, wait, no, that's Buck Rogers. Rogers. And I don't have an answer. I don't. For myself. I I need to really think about that, but I don't have – I don't necessarily have an answer. Um, I mean, the only thing that I could – just simply come up with is tell better stories. I mean, really, that, that's, where, that's where it comes right down to. It's just simply tell strengths? better stories. Well, what are Space 1999's strengths in Series 1? What, well, what? The, okay, the strengths, I mean, we've already covered some of this. I mean, some of the strengths are the production values. I mean, these, these are what I would call externals. By the way, the most expensive TV series ever produced in Europe as of that date. Indeed. Well, I can believe it. I mean, the sets are amazing. I think the sets are, are absolutely glorious. And there have been episodes in the past where they've done some just brilliant stuff with the lighting to create the eeriest of moods. So there's a lot of production value that makes this, story, makes this series really outstanding. Everything falls apart when they're trying to write or trying to craft a good story. You know, and, and, and I hate to draw the Star Trek parallel again, but re- really, I mean, let's be honest, Star Trek set the bar in terms of science fiction television shows. Especially, Space opera, at least, yeah. Yeah, and part of, the, part of what they did is they went out and uh, sought out good writers who are very, very established science fiction writers. At least initially. Yes, initially. I mean, now, yeah, it, it faltered towards the end. But in the beginning, they were looking at getting the best writers they could – to tell the best stories for this series. Are, are you saying that Star Trek faltered when Fred Freiberger came in in the third series? No comment. No comment. Huh? No comment. Uh, uh, all right. Anyway, but, back to Space 1999. That's part of the problem. I mean, these stories are just weak. And I'm going to go back to something that um, – I'm, I'm, now I'm going to quote um, Joe Michael Straczynski of Babylon 5 – who quoted Harlan Ellison, everybody's favorite, oh, star lost. A, a star, everybody's favorite curmudgeon. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and, and you, Joe Michael Straczynski of Babylon 5 well, quoted his hero, well, Harlan Ellison. It's funny you should bring, bring up star lost because I'm about to quote something that Harlan told Joe that is going to be laughable when you consider star lost in this, Can you in do this it mix. In his voice? Oh, God, no. Can you sound short? No, but uh, the only thing I can do is I can imitate it the way that New York. I I can only do it the way that Joe Straczynski did it because he tried to imitate Harlan and did a terrible job of it. So I can just simply imitate Joe. But uh, Joe did uh, early in in, in the very early uh, development days of Babylon Five approached Harlan and said, "You know, I'm working on this series. You know, do you, and you know, I want to come with these these kind of stories, and I want to write this this five year story. Do you have any ideas, any suggestions?" And Harlan's response was, "Don't write crap. Don't write crap." <sighs> yeah, I've heard that quote from Harlan before. That's true, and not from him directly. I've I've never actually met Harlan Ellison. But, Neither have uh, I, but. Joe and Harlan have, had become good friends, and Harlan did work on Babylon 5 in some capacity. So I will accept the fact that Harlan did say that, that he told yeah, Joe. No, I, that sounds like him. I mean, it does sound like him. You know, it sounds like his advice. Don't write crap. Well, you know, <laughs> of course, we talked that you had to bring up Star Hire Lost. Good writers like me. 
Yeah, and uh, and uh, not out of high school. Uh, otherwise, you get you get star lost. Okay, so strengths, production values, weaknesses, bad stories, and that's um, and that's the kicker. That that's really about? where this all falls apart. I mean, these stories are so badly written, and because the stories are being badly written, the characters are being badly written. Do you think that the characters are badly written because of the stories, or do, and, and I, I know there's a there's a horse and a cart there, but are are, are these script deficiencies notwithstanding? Are these really well realized characters? No, they're not. I, they're you know, not well realized, and that's that's one of the biggest problems. Uh, you know, you mentioned cart, you know, you know, cart and the horse kind of thing. You know, if if we won't, it doesn't doesn't really matter uh, in terms of the characters. They're being badly written. That's all there is to it. Well, they, they're not. Guess, they're not understood. I guess what I'm getting at is, you know, you can you can have a you can have a character who's like a big ball of putty. You get a writer in and he writes him one way. He's the hothead this week. Oh, next week he's the philosopher. Oh, next week he's the the shy person. And that's a sign that the writer doesn't have a good grip on the character. Well, and yeah. that's a terrible sign. Uh, and then... Well, neither does your story editor either. If you have correct. one... Because you, they're got, the ones who are supposed to be creating the unified vision, and we're not seeing that here. I mean, at least with Star Trek, uh, I mean, yeah, the, there there were some little growing pains in the beginning. I mean, there was tiny bits of tiny bits of inconsistency don't you think here Kermit and there. Is kind of consistent, don't you think? Doctor Russell are at least kind of consistent. They are, my, but there's my no complaint. Is they're just terrible no, characters? Well, they are terrible characters, but you would think that yes, they've been thrust into situations outside of their control. And I had said, you know, and we had agreed on this early on. They didn't sign up to be explorers. Mm-hmm. That's not their job. Yes, so, but you know, Koenig is. Well, yeah, he really turns out he really is. Yeah, he is an explorer at heart, um, but maybe a really bitter one. A very, I could have been the one on the Ultra Pro. Exactly. It could have been, been me. So I'd, I'd have killed that thing because I'd have used a, a hatchet or something. So like, instead, I'm going to be the bitter commander on Moonbase. I can see that, but I don't see him shed that either, mm. if that's the case. Helena, well, she's, she's, a, she's a tougher nut to crack in all of this, you know, of course, of that face. What can I say? Uh, but I don't see any. You hit her with a hammer; it's liable to bounce back. Yeah, um, uh, yeah. It's called Space God. Uh, Space God equals Botox. Uh, but I don't. I haven't. I haven't seen any uh, any evolution in her character either. But then again, you know, you can't get past that face. It's the same expression. If there is evolution, I'm not seeing it. And she's just still a terrible doctor. Well, yeah. There's no. <laughs> I mean, the only one who seems to be a really good doctor is Matthias. Everybody, I mean, but Helena, oh, she's a horrible doctor. That's why I, it's a good thing they always take her off the, you know, get her off the moon, let her explore the planet because at least that's less patience. She uh, runs the risk of killing. Uh, but the, I don't see any development in these characters. I don't see any evolution in them. And going through the experiences that they're going through, you would think that there'd be some kind of character growth. And this goes back to what I was saying. Uh, earlier on, I mean, this is part of the reset button. It's not just, you know, we're not just resetting everything that happened on Alpha. We're resetting the people as well. Uh, other characters, Bergman. What do you think? Wow. He, then there, and there's there's a hot ball of I don't know what he's supposed to be. <laughs> and things I like Barry Morse. 
And and I remember when I first saw Space 1999, I was really intrigued with the idea of uh, Victor Bergman. He seemed like, uh, I mean, a rather warm character. But now that I watch these episodes now and really look at character development, I mean, it's like, what, what Victor are we getting this week? I mean, there's almost like there should be a psychological case for split personality disorder on this man. Paul Morrow? Uh, almost as angry as Nick. And by Nick, you mean Alan? Uh, yeah, I mean Alan. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I meant Alan, Alan Carter. I was thinking, yeah, Nick Tate. Alan hasn't been like uh, so Alan angry has, lately. No, because he's Paul is chilled, man. Oh, he's chilled big time. Paul's the angry one. Paul is wound up tighter than that mustache. Yeah, and I think I, it's, mean, I think it's because he's not getting anything from Zandra. Could be. <laughs> he's backed up. Can't believe I just. And said And yet, that. in this episode. You know, he, he was, has to play. He, the, he was play, He has to play the hard man. He at was times. playing. You know, and and to be honest, I thought he was doing. Uh, as far as a character goes, I thought he was doing an admirable job under the most dire of circumstances. Yeah, we're all going to die here. Everybody in Alpha is going to die. I'm just conserving the energy for as long as I possibly can, holding out hope. Doctor Matthias is being all. Well, you can't really die, patients. They're going to die. It's like. <clears throat> Look around you, Bob. We're all dying. They're gonna die. So, all right, raise the you know raise the heat in two degrees or whatever, two units in sick bay. And take and it, as, take it know, to it. He, as he leaves and everyone's nice, he goes and lower it to here. So I mean, he's he's being he's pragmatic. Sacrificing, he's sacrificing everyone in main mission. Yeah, uh, they're all like, "Geez, Paul, that's nice of you, but what a jerk." <laughs> I wasn't really. Was, was I, did you get that? I didn't get that necessarily. I don't. I, I yeah I think they all got it but I mean okay let let's let's play that game again lower it raise it two points in sick bay mm-hmm. and lower it two in main mission how about raise it two points in sick bay and, and lower lo- one point in main mission and one point in the eagle bays or, oh, yeah or, oh, wait a minute or half a point in main mission half a point in the eagle bays half a point in hydroponics exactly uh, i mean there's, there's so many in the gymnasium yeah there's there's uh, if you can how it, it'd be nice to know how how fine uh, a measurement you can actually have in terms of those units. I mean, if you could really break them down to fine decimal points, you know, uh, a tenth here, a tenth here, a tenth here, ten, you know, you know, you pick twenty locations where you're only lowering it a tenth. I mean, that's so really close negligible. Sections of alpha off and shut the power off in there at all, completely. Right, heating off completely. Now, and I'm going again. I'm going to attribute that to just terrible writing. But yes, Paul had a little bit of character there, even though even when he's doing it, he's got that sneer on his face. That seems to be a permanent feature of it. Um, we talked a little bit about Alan, but there's Alan. Um, he's so much more likable. Yeah, we don't have the angry Aussie anymore. Because he was really just, uh, you know, ready to leave the revolution. Yeah, and, and he and got he, shot in Dragon's Domain. He got shot tw- or, or clubbed. Twice. He got yeah, clubbed. clubbed once, shot once, I think. He got clubbed twice. And all he had to, and, and he just, when he came to the second time, all he had was his, wow, he, uh, he doesn't really like me, does he? Yeah, what, what's he got against me, Commander? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he did it with a smile and a sly chuckle, and I thought, wow, man. Now, if you want to talk about character growth. Now, that's obviously, in a way, that's a more stereotype Australian tale. Just kind of roll with it? Yeah. It kind of, 
Yeah, and and before he was just man, he was just a jerk. Let's see. So, is Sandra? Should we even bother to mention her? No, she's just there. Um, the the girl. Um, is it Pam? I um, don't know. I don't know. There's the other girl. Oh, Kano. Yes, Kano. Kano. What do you think of Kano's character? I mean, he's kind of important. I mean, they can't function without the computer, and computer needs him, so... He, he and computer are married. You mm. know, he reminds me... Have you, have you ever seen Galaxy Quest? Oh, yeah. He reminds me of Sigourney Weaver's character in the Galaxy Quest universe. Talks to the computer because the computer will only listen to Sigourney Weaver's character. Same, that's what Kano is. I mean, they, they would have absolutely no idea how to operate computer if it were not for Kano. It's true, and, and Kano is the one that's always giving them excuses. Oh! The computer. The computer. There is one other line of dialogue. So they go to the planet. Sorry, go back to the episode for just a second. Mm-hmm. They went to the planet, and they find the Sanskrit, which for our listeners who are not versed in Sanskrit, or in ancient languages, is proto-European language from a long time ago. Yep. And so, therefore, an Earth language. And... They're like, wow, you know, we don't have contact to the reference library on Alpha and the computers, so, I mean, we're not going to be able to figure this out. Do you know, Anna happens to be an expert linguist. Huh. Philologist. I, we have a, no, she doesn't collect stamps. And What? <laughs> I'm, I'm being sarcastic. I believe that's a philatelist. Ah. Um, as opposed to a flatulist. Or a phlebotomist that draws blood. I know. I have seen some amazing drawings of blood. Um, anyway. Yeah, just you know, pour, pour, you know, take, take red red uh, felt tip tip. Uh, blah, you know what I'm trying to say? Red felt tip pen and just you know, big. Yeah, that's that's blood. But Koenig's comment is maybe computer knows more than we than do. We do. Yeah, that's right. Because he knows did something we don't. Because he he, said he gave the order to Kano. To have the computer select two people with the widest of experience. Yep. Which was like, how how nebulous can you get? Uh-huh. Fortunately, Sanskrit happened to be one of... Well, I think Sanskrit's going to come in handy on the planet Arcadia, Commander. Well, especially so, yeah. if Space Brain's been talking to computer. <clears throat> right, or the planet, or, you know, Space God or whatever. I mean, yeah, that's the, that's the problem here is that... Uh, anyway. Okay, well, I think we went through all the characters. We went through the episode. Um... You know, is it apart from apart from scripting? What is there anything you do with season two characters? Um, uh, do you, do you feel like uh, Doctor Russell and Commander Koenig just aren't emotional enough? Well, you know, okay. Now, you, now here's one thing, and and I I I had said that I really had not seen any emotional growth in each of these characters, but there is one thing, and we have seen uh, an emotional. Uh, journey with, between Koenig and and Dr. Russell as a couple. Because in the beginning, these two did not seem to get along. Oh, no. But Absolutely. over the course of time, we've started to get this sense of, you know, they started off, okay, it's, you know, we're, we're thrust into the situation together. Let's, let's learn to get along. And now there's this, now they care. So there is that. Um, so are they are they Han or Jelena? Because you're totally shipping them. Because I'm I'm barely seeing that romance between them. But you're right. 
There's well, a little bit. It's, it's, it's they're hinting at. From, well, I'm not saying that yeah. there is a romance, but they clearly care. And there was uh, some reference in a in an episode that we watched maybe a month or so ago. Yeah. Um, and and I, I believe it – Oh, Yes, yes, yes. And if I look down my list of episodes – uh, uh Brian the – not Brian the Brain. No, I don't it's, think it's uh, Brian the Brain. It's Gwent. It, uh, I'm not sure if it's – no. Infernal Machine, no, yes. Actually, because he said, I wouldn't deprive you of your companion, Commander. Actually, it's not the one that I was thinking of. I'm trying to find the episode right now. Uh, it's where they became cavemen. <laughs> Immunity syndrome? Not that one. That's the one where they became. Is that it? Isn't that the one? Where immunity they syndrome? No, it's full circle. Sorry. Yes, full circle. That's the one. Uh, because there was some. There was uh, someone had analyzed how Helena was. Uh, she appeared to have some sort of protectiveness, uh, or at least her her uh, her primitive counterpart uh, when she was in a primitive state. She had some kind of uh, sense of protectiveness uh, or raw emotion over primitive Koenig. And someone made the analysis of, you know, and she she also uh, was ready to kill another woman. Mm-hmm. And the thought was is that you know that there's that there's emotion that there's that there's feelings of caring and fondness. So someone had did did make that statement, and in that shot you saw Helena and John kind of look at each other with a smile, acknowledging that yeah maybe there is something here. So that was the first time we actually get the sen- get some kind of a sense of that there's more than just friendship. And then in, in what we just saw in Dragon's Domain, um, Kone comes in with what, what you know flowers or something for, for Helen after he's been you know chewed out effectively by her. So yeah. there is there is there is hint that there is some kind of. There there is something there. I would not call it a full blown romance, but there it's is something. Torrid. Man, it's torrid, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, or no, trying, it's, it's but pretty, it's pretty subdued. As, yes, as romances go, it's incredibly subdued. Yeah. Um, now maybe that um, will change. If I were writing the show, I might want to change that a little bit because it could make for a very interesting kind of um, a, situ- a series of situations. You know, I don't know. You know, look, you know, uh, Rob, you know not Robinson Crusoe, but. Uh, uh, Swiss Family Robinson kind of a thing, you know. You know, you've got your your family with and your your mother and father. You know, the, the couple, you know, and they have to watch after everybody. The kids, it's all for the kids. It's all for yeah. the kids, and you know, the kids are everybody who's on Moonbase. You know, someone here's a question. Since we're we're dragging it on, well, no, this will be my last one, and then we'll turn it off. This has been an epic episode, but of the podcast anyway. <laughs> yes, it has. Um, it has, but it's a series ending, so we're we're. It's more than just an episode. It deserved the uh, analysis. Koenig won't let Luke kill Helena. And Helena's like, no, John, let him kill me. <laughs> and everyone in the moon base, even Victor and and Paul and Connor was like, come on, we can't. We can't let him have those supplies. It's a death sentence for us, John. She'll be dead anyway. Uh, now, you could kind of look at that as being a moral failing. And that's 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 our heroes or our not heroes, not Mr. Prime guy, giving in to, well, this is going to kill me or her, right? There is that sort of – there's that 
sort of desperation. It's like, have you no moral fiber that you can stand up to somebody like this and let not let somebody kill for for your benefit? And and I I feel that's the way that they've put that, and that's what happens to all the characters on Alpha except for Koenig all the time. But do you think this scene would have worked if everyone there didn't think Koenig was shacking up with her? Because really, Ooh. that's the only thing. It's like, what if he'd taken Alan hostage? I think he'd be dead. Or Sandra. Or Paul. Or Victor. Yeah, I you make a good point. You make a good point. I mean, th- that could be the very reason why, I mean, we don't know for certain. Could be the reason Luke took exactly. her as the hostage. Exactly. Like, this is the one the commander's not going to kill. He, so, I he, mean, completely, he will completely cave and Baudar every everyone whim. Everyone thought he did. And everybody thought he did. Yeah. But as as you know, but as we said uh, earlier, Koenig had a plan. So but his it certainly looked to her cabin after hours. Yeah. Uh, have not gone unnoticed. No. Well, everybody's being monitored on that bloody moon base, Alpha. So I'm sure someone was like, Haha, two heat signatures in the commander's quarters." Okay. Have you noticed the commander's comlock uh, badges uh, in Doctor Russell's cabin again? House. Yeah, yeah, their heart rates are elevated. Hmm. Better call. Yeah. Commander Koenig, Dr. Russell, are you two okay? Wouldn't that be funny? Wouldn't that be funny if you were monitoring that in in the sick bay or in med lab or whatever they call it? Oh, that is a really warped form of voyeurism. This is a funny practical joke. I can't help noticing that the heart rates are up. Let's trigger the alarm just for fun. Make them come to the phone like they did in Dragon's Domain. Yeah. Where he... You know, they woke him up in the middle of the night after his nightmare. He's like, are you all right? Come to the thing and talk to me. Okay. It's like, yes, we were fine, Dr. Russell. Are you going to do this every time? Are you? Because, yeah. Anyway. Well, space is unlimited and Space 1999 has an unlimited number of stories that they can tell us in Series 2. So, um, Ben, thank you for joining me. A uh, Pleasure. Listeners, I hope you'll join us all again next time on Fusion Patrol. Cheers. Fusion Patrol is a Lone Locust production. Like us? Please consider becoming our sponsor at patreon.com slash fusion patrol. We'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Stop by and visit us at our website, fusionpatrol.com. Search for us on Facebook under Fusion Patrol. Check out our Twitter handle at Fusion Patrol. Or just send us an email at feedback at fusionpatrol.com. Please come join the conversation. Our music is Fight the Future by Amberwolf.